Was Jonah swallowed by a whale? Was there really a mean innkeeper who wouldn't let poor Mary stay the night when she was pregnant? Is cleanliness next to godliness? Did all the people make fun of Noah while he was building the ark? So exactly none of those statements or sentiments are actually in the Bible. People believe a lot of culturally assumed lore about what is and isn't really in scripture. So we often find ourselves scratching our heads and asking, does the Bible really say XYZ? Today, as we continue our series exploring what's really in the Bible and what's not, we'll be talking about sex before marriage, if people are supposed to go to church, whether women should wear jewelry and get dressed up, and lastly, if people really go to hell. It's gonna be a doozy. So welcome to episode three of Does the Bible Really Say on Theology On Air. Well, welcome back to Theology On Air. Uh, as you know, we are an offshoot of Theology On Tap, which is a ministry to young adults in Houston where we talk about theology and philosophy and faith and culture all over delicious beer and food. And uh, I am Sarah Stone. I'm the founder and director of Theology On Tap, and I'm joined um, with Evan McClanahan, the senior pastor at First Lutheran Church in Midtown. We've called in the big guns today by having our guest Elizabeth White join us. Elizabeth has a master's degree in theology from the University of St. Andrews and currently teaches theology and ethics at Houston Christian High School. She and her husband, Noah, and their newest addition to the family, little PJ, are longtime friends of Theology on Tap, and Beth um, is soon to be joining the ranks of our leadership team. So thanks for joining us. Happy to have you. Happy to be here. So this series, if you've listened to the first couple episodes, you have the vibe. If you're just joining us, we have crowdsourced some questions that people have about, does the Bible really say dot, dot, dot? And so we've gotten questions about heaven and hell and angels and demons and tithing and all kinds of things. And interestingly enough, a lot of the questions that we've gotten aren't actually in scripture as stated. So, you know, the, the actual phrase isn't in scripture, but it still may be true in scripture. So we want to unpack some of those today and... um but before we do that, if you're listening and you love us, share this podcast with a friend. Just right now, you can pause it or you can uh, keep listening if you can multitask and hit the little share button. Share it with a friend. Uh, you can review it. You can post it on social media. But um, but if we can spread the love a little bit, more people can, can hear the things that we have to say. And I think we're saying some interesting things. So, okay. I think what we're going to do is just dive in and have a conversation about these questions. We have four questions today. I'm going to go ahead and start with one that I actually hear a lot, which is this idea about, does the Bible really say that church attendance is mandatory? And I hear people all the time saying, well, you know, I love the Lord, but I don't like church or I don't like Christians. <laughs> and so my theology or my religion, my faith is private. And so I, you know, I sip my coffee and I look out on the bayou and that's my church, you know? Um, and there's actually not an, a verse in the Bible that says you have to go to church every Sunday. And certainly like, you know, our salvation isn't hinging on that, but some of us think it's pretty important. So I'm curious what you guys think about is going to church mandatory. What does the Bible say? Well, I think it's worth noting first that the word church means a gathering of people. Um, yeah. And so if you're going to be a part of the church and we talk about the church as being the people of God, yeah, then I think there is a world where like gathering with other believers is what makes you part of the church, which I know that's the question is like, are you supposed to go to church? But no matter what, like if you are a believer, you should consider yourself a part of the church. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess the question is more so how do you distinguish between attending a local church and then also being a part of the broad global church as well? Yeah. Like if you have a dinner party with six other Christians and you talk about politics the whole time, does mm -hmm. that count? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's that's definitely part of the question for sure. Is how what what constitutes as the church and is actually being a part of an organized institution that is a church is that actually necessary or not? Yeah. Um but I do think it's like worth noting how part of this problem or this question comes into play because of the rise of like modern individualism. Mm -hmm. Um 
and how we think that, yeah, it can just be me and God and my coffee and my Bible and have a quiet time every morning. And then that's all that's needed for my Christianity. But that's just such like a foreign concept to the Bible. Um, yeah. Even if the Bible doesn't say you have to gather with other believers to be a Christian, I think that it's so implied and ingrained it's baked in into what it means. So much. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. one of the questions we could ask is not, is it required, but is it beneficial? Yeah. And I think the answer is clearly yes. I mean, I have, it only took searching, you know, for like 30 seconds to find a bevy of verses mm-hmm. that, yeah. that talk about the ways the church can actually help you. Like in James five fourteen, it says, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them. Um, and I found that to be true in my own life. Like when mm-hmm. I am going through hard stuff, it is the church and I mean the people, but usually they're people that are part of my local church community yeah. or my Bible study or, you know, that kind of thing. They're I mean, the ones that help. How else are you going to raise a barn? <laughs> are we Amish? <laughs> well, you know, but, 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 uh, I mean, I joke, but in the old world, I mean, your survival might very well depend on, mm-hmm. you know, your, your community. I mean, um, you know, like, for example, you know, you think about like Jesus with the, um, you know, like the neighbor, you know, who in the middle of the night is asking for bread, yeah. you know, or something like mm-hmm. that. You think like, these were people who were, it was pretty much like day to day, you know, living for the most part, you know, they didn't have a retirement account, you know, they didn't have a pantry full of food. It was like, well, you know, they didn't have refrigeration. So, you know, often like borrowing the cup of sugar metaphorically might be like, Hey, do you have enough, you know, feed, food for me to feed my kids today? I'll to pay you back me. or something. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's like the idea of doing things like totally on your own is just totally foreign to the mm-hmm. Bible. I mean, it's it's foreign to the foreign to the a- ancient world. You know, this came up a lot during the pandemic. Yep. Um, I might have used air quotes if this wasn't a podcast, but just because I think that word is a little bit overused. But that said, because anyway. during the time of COVID-19. So because this came up a lot, there were a lot of yeah. questions arguing yeah. on Facebook like, um, hey, it's totally fine if we take off from church, you know, three or four months till this whole thing blows over. And there were other people saying, no, 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 you can't neglect to meet together. You mm-hmm. know, the, the Hebrews. Which I was just about to bring up and yeah. ask you guys about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, yeah, I mean, I would just throw that out into the mix and see, see what y'all thought. But, um, you know, I, I, I would tend to be on the side of, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, do you have to do it? Well, it's almost like a confusion of law and gospel because atten- we should take a drink. That feels like a very Evan slash. Well, it's definitely a Lutheran thing, right? yeah. Be- because because it's like being in fellowship is gospel, yeah. And so and so turning it into law mm-hmm. is like it's just a category error. It's like mm. why would mm. why would we think of it in that way? Who, who would who would not want to be in this community? Yeah, you know. Like what? Well, you may be onto something there as far yeah. as who who would not want to be part of this community is when people are part of a community that's not doing the kind of thing we're describing, mm-hmm. right? It's either too big, too distant, too full of – I mean, there's hypocrites in every church, but some maybe feel that way more than others. And Too many drum sets. To, oh, gosh. Here we go. That's not one of the questions <laughs> oh, today. Okay. So okay. you'll have to address that question to a, a later episode. But um, yeah, I, I have been part of and I've – and I know people that are part of very healthy church communities where they're uplifted, they're encouraged, they're taught. They also find themselves convicted of things where they need to make changes in their life. And um, and then I think there are people that are part of churches where they reasonably think, well, I don't really need to be a part of this. They don't miss me when I'm gone. I don't miss them. And and maybe that's a question about the institution. <laughs> but let's talk for a second about that Hebrews passage, because that's the one that people say when they want to bang the drum about you've got to be in church every Sunday, which I'm a big fan of being in church every Sunday. I will just say growing up, that's what we did. Like people were uh, always surprised that when we would go on vacation, that we would still find a church and go to it. I mean, your dad was a pastor. My dad was a pastor, but, and that was actually part of it is that we Mm -hmm. could uh, worship with my dad in the Mm -hmm. pew with us on those times instead of he's up at the front. But, um, but I mean, there were things where, you know, my choir or something would demand us on a Sunday morning and my parents would write a letter. Sarah's not available because we take church really seriously. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. they might not do that now, but, <laughs> but here's the passage that gets used for that. It's Hebrews 10, 24, and it's surrounded by a, a section that talks about the whole great cloud of witnesses. And it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That is so lovely. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching and the day, of course, the day of the Lord's return. 
Um, thoughts about that passage? Do you think that passage is saying, look, meet regularly? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is saying to meet regularly with the church. Um, I don't think that that means that it's saying that you have to attend a church service every single week Mm -hmm. or you're not. Like, I think we all kind of agree on that one. But I do think that it's important to note, like, even that passage assumes that church is not just like my my church. Their slogan is church isn't a church. event to attend, but a people to belong to. It's like Mm. something we say every single week. Um, And I think that that is really like it's when I think about church, that is the phrase that comes to mind the most is that it's a people to belong to. And so I actually am not a big proponent and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, but I don't think that I think people who look for churches to, no offense, but who look for churches to attend while on vacation are kind of almost missing the point of what a church service and a church gathering should be, which is being a part of a people that you belong to, that you know, Mm. that you share intimacy with, that you are in community with, that you can rely on for your needs, um, whatever they may be. And so I... I think that seeing church like that, like, oh, well, I have to go to church and I'm on vacation, so I'm going to go find a gathering of random people I don't know. While there is something beautiful about worshiping with people who you know you have things with co- in common with, even if mm-hmm. you don't know them. And I think that that is kind of, again, that like global church versus local church distinction. Yeah. I think this verse is specifically talking about people that can encourage you and you can spur one mm-hmm. another on. I think it is talking about gathering with a local congregation in whatever context that may be um, regularly, because if you don't have that kind of intimacy, then you're not really experiencing what it means to be a part of the people of God, yeah. and the family of God, like because you're not approaching it or seeing it like a community that is a family or somebody yeah something close to that no, so like that's that. that's what i would say in relation to that verse i think there's also a whole conversation to be had and we don't have to have it here but about church being the bride of christ mm-hmm. well it's the body of christ and it's the bride mm-hmm. of christ and there's so much conversation about that in the new testament that it it seems like a foregone conclusion mm-hmm. that church is happening and when i say church you know i mean like you've said a gathering of people mm-hmm that love the Lord, that are, you know, local sort of families, extended family. Yeah. Um, in Ephesians 1, it says, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him, this is Jesus, to be head over everything and for the church, which is his body, and the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I guess someone could say, well, I still qualify if I'm a member of the body mm-hmm. that does my own thing at home. But that's just not how a body works. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have those passages in scripture that talk about, you know, if you're the eye or the, yeah. you know, and you don't have that, like the body's not complete. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Bible is pretty clear that we should be, but not just for the shouldness of it, but because it benefits us and it glorifies the Lord mm-hmm. involved in a local church. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that if you don't go 365, I mean, sorry, that's days, 52, <laughs> 52 uh, times that you're like not saved. Mm-hmm. It's not a salvation mm-hmm. issue. It's a sanctification and um, an obedience issue. Yeah. Well, I, I might. You could disagree. Yeah. Like, I think it actually could in some ways be a salvation issue, depending on what you oh, actually think about salvation. Of the sense that like salvation isn't just, at least in my mind, isn't just being saved from something, right? Like it's not just saved from punishment. And we'll talk about what that punishment might be. Uh, (laughs) But it's not just being saved from something, but it's being saved for something. And that something isn't something that starts once you die, but Uh. it's something that starts immediately. As soon as you experience the grace and the salvation of Christ in your life, it changes you. It changes Mm. everything. It redefines what your life is. You now enter into the kingdom of God. Yeah. as far as it is already present on earth. Um, And I think that if you neglect to participate in the people of God and the kingdom of God, which is the church, then you are neglecting to actually participate in the salvation that's been offered to you. Hmm. Um, And you're missing out on what that salvation actually means. And I don't know what that means for you after you die. Like you could still get to be with the Lord if you have believed that Jesus is, you know, your savior and all the things yeah. we say is required for salvation, then maybe after you die, you will get to be in the new creation with the Lord. But at the same time, you've missed out on so much of your life actually participating in the kingdom of God if you neglect going to church. Interesting hot take from Beth White. Mm-hmm. I'm here for it. <laughs> I like it. 
A final image is the the one that Paul uses, many members in one body. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, so if you decline to go, you're actually depriving yeah. mm, the body totally. of, you know, whatever it is, that whatever whatever the liver, whatever part of your the body <laughs> it is you're bringing. You know, None so. of us are the liver because we don't have filters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good one. Thanks, thanks. So, yeah, but I, I don't know. I think, you know, so many people have so many gifts and uh, – to to sort of st- keep them to yourself, you know, is depriving the the the, the church of of much needed help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that because it's instead of saying like, "Isn't this fine for me?" Mm-hmm. It's saying, "Well, maybe it is fine for you, but it's not fine for us. Like, we need you." Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, that's an exactly. interesting. Yeah, this is good. I like it. I feel like we can close that one out. I mean, we haven't said everything there is to say, but that's not the point. Um, okay, let's talk about sex. That's always fun. And we, when this comes out, we will have already finished putting out the entire All Things Sex podcast. So if you really want to get into the nitty gritty, you can go back and listen to all those episodes. But this question, uh, so when I put these questions together, some of them were my own and some are crowdsourced. This one I had put in the mix and a couple other people asked about because it's a question that it is not phrased this way in the Bible. This verse does not exist. The question is, does the Bible really say not to have premarital sex or not to have sex until you're married? And there is not a verse that says, go ye therefore and be chaste until you're married. <laughs> but I think that the sentiment and the the ethos, the, the teaching around sex arrives there. I think that's very clearly what God wants and it's what's best. So what do you guys think? I mean, I have um, thoughts about Genesis and marriage and things like that. But what comes to your mind when you hear that question? Yeah, I think there's like two directions that you can go when talking about sex in the Bible. And the first is to look at like a biblical theology. So start in Genesis and look at sex and how it's talked about sex and sexuality and desire and all of these concepts and how they're talked about from Genesis all the way to Revelation and look Mm -hmm. for themes and that kind of thing. Um, And then you can also just go to the very relevant passages in Paul Mm -hmm. where he's addressing marriage and sex. And it's while there isn't a similar to the church attendance thing, while there isn't an explicit saying like you should not have sex outside of marriage, um, there is an understanding when Paul is communicating to the church that the only appropriate way to have sex is within the bounds mm-hmm. of marriage. And I think that First Corinthians, I guess it's six through eight are the pa- the relevant chapters that are talking okay. about this. I think have at least how I would read it and I can find more specific details to this, have very clear, like, Paul has said that there are two paths when it comes to sexuality. Mm-hmm. And the first is committed, faithful, monogamous marriage. And Which the second, leads to life. Yes. Or, well, no, the second is, like, two paths for the Christian to take. Two oh, options, okay. right? So the first would be committed, faithful, monogamous marriage where you can express your sexuality. Or there is the path of celibacy and devotion singleness, to yeah. God and singleness. And that's, um, while that can be a difficult teaching, I think that there is, like the way Paul puts it, at least, we look at Paul, we look at Jesus, and this comes up. I know y'all talked about it in your sex, like they, in your sex podcast. Sex, we did talk about <laughs> in this. In your sex podcast, you're talking about <laughs> this. It is like the two most prominent like featured people in the Bible in the New Testament, at least, yeah. are single and celibate. So interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that that's worth acknowledging that sex isn't the center of humanity and not it's like not ultimate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, to answer it with a question is what would have been the result of a woman, um upon it being discovered that she was not a virgin the night of her wedding. I, I, bad things, I guess. I think so, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it... Uh, and it, You're asking stoning. in, like, the ancient Near East. Yeah, not yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Stoning. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, like, death penalty? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So this was a big deal. And one of the one of the things about the way, you know, when, when people... 
when people want to say, does the Bible say this, mm-hmm. you know, to try to, to try to prove a point, it does make me a little nervous because it's like, <laughs> well, the Bible doesn't say everything about everything. Right. There are some things that are just baked in, you know, or yeah. that are so obvious. So yeah. if you have a situation, I mean, back to the sex podcast where we talked with Paul Copan about like mm-hmm. the, you know, the rapist having to, uh, the rape victim having to marry the rapist. And we mm-hmm. talked about that in depth, so I'm not going to do it here. Yeah. But the reason that the man ends up being obligated to do that is because of what he has taken from her. Yeah. He has taken from her opportunities for marriage Mm -hmm. because in that, I don't know, I don't, I'm not an expert, but honor shame culture. She is, you know, vulnerable. Yes. Yeah. So, and you know, bring shame upon your family because she, you know, if, if, you know, if, if a woman is, you know, chooses unfaithfulness before marriage, she brings shame into the family and all the, you know, there's real consequences. Right. And she this. doesn't have any financial security at that point. Yeah. And, so isn't yeah. the question obvious? Like, does the Bible say you can have sex? Well, what were the, what would everyone who ever wrote anything in the Bible have thought about sex before marriage? It yeah. would have brought shame to the family. Mm-hmm. So it didn't, it doesn't need to be said. <laughs> and, and, and to take it even one step further, people will say, Jesus doesn't talk about homosexuality. And yeah. so again, it's the same, same kind of argument. It's like, well, uh, a, I think he does speak to pornea and sexual immorality, which I think would have included all of the Jewish laws on that. Sure. But, um, but absence of speaking something doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't give permission to do the opposite. So, yeah. yeah. And I think the Bible also, I mean, if we're just thinking about this sort of logically, the Bible talks about, you know, living a life um, with wisdom mm-hmm. and asking for wisdom. And and I think we can just sort of look at culture and look at mm-hmm. how does it go when people have casual sex outside of marriage and how does it go when they have sex only within marriage? It seems like one, <clears throat> excuse me, just works better than the other. Yeah. I mean, that's not an answer about what's in the Bible or not, <laughs> except that the Bible wants us to live a life of peace and blessing and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Curious if either of you have any thoughts on, I think the word is fornication that Paul uses when he talks about do not be involved in, and then he lists some things, you Mm -hmm. know, and it's my understanding that any sex outside of marriage would have been included in that word. And in that way, it maybe actually does say not to do this. That's the closest we can get to there being like a verse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we have any Greek scholars here, but. No, I don't necessarily know fornication. I don't, I, I'm not going to pretend to know all the connotations that come with that. But I do know that even pornea, like it's, it's distorted or like not proper, not appropriate Mm -hmm. sexual relations is what those two words I'm sure mean. And a lot of that is like, uh, I think specifically and probably most prominent talking about things that happen in like pagan temples and temple prostitution and those kinds of things. But I think that it definitely lumps in adultery and anything else that's outside of marriage that, Mm -hmm. um, because Paul again praises marriage as the appropriate place for sex to take place. And he doesn't ever talk about it in a positive context other than in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. So it seems like that's the implication. And the Bible seems to care a lot about what we do with our bodies. Mm -hmm. The body is important. And and so I think sometimes people think Christians are just fuddy-duddies about sex and we just want to keep people from having fun. Um, (laughs) But – and that maybe maybe we only ought to care about spiritual things. But Christians that have a robust Mm -hmm. theology – should care a lot about the body too. The Bible does. Jesus does. He came back bodily. Yeah. You know? So I think it's important that we treat our bodies yeah, with, do with our bodies honor, respect, and and surrender those to the Lord as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think something <laughs> I I use this whenever I teach sexuality to my students, which my students are all seniors in high school. So they're 17 and 18 and girls and boys. So uh, my opening phrase when I do my lecture on sex is that sex is created by God and sex is about God. Um, and, and they're like, they, yeah, they all, it's, what it it's like on TikTok. definitely a, uh, I do it intentionally to be provocative because I think that it's important to kind of, yeah, shake up a lot of what they think about this concept. Because I think we have done almost a disservice to kids, especially in how we either don't talk about sex at all, or we talk about it only in the context of shame. So don't have sex before marriage. And I think that that's so unhelpful. And so what I try to do in my class when I talk about it, while I am telling them you shouldn't have sex before marriage, I am telling them in a way that is uh, more so letting them to see 
letting them see how beautiful sex is supposed to be and right. what it actually is supposed to be, which is about God. And Paul is clear about that as well. And it's clear in Genesis that it's about this union and this intimacy that makes you completely known by the other person. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what God has come to do with humanity is yep. to have this intimacy and this union between himself and his people that makes us totally and utterly known by the other person. Um, and I think that the second you separate that from a faithful relationship, it's no longer about God. Because if it you're doing it with anybody who is not committed and faithful to you long term in the context of marriage, mm-hmm. then it's the same thing as like – having a union like that with a God who is not covenanted Ooh, to be Beth. with you forever. And I think that that's really, I think that's what it's about. It's about idolatry. It's not about anything else. I love that. And it makes me think of a funny story. I'm going to close this section out with, which is that when I was in seminary, so I took just the fun seminary classes because I was getting a counseling degree. So I got to take like <laughs> theology and Bible and, but I didn't have to take Greek and Hebrew. So best of every <laughs> world. So I took a class called the Theology of Sexuality, which was a fantastic class. We read Sounds fantastic good. texts. Our teacher was wonderful. I don't remember his name. So if he ever <laughs> listens to this podcast, uh, this is a funny thing, which by this point he probably knows, um, which is that he was talking about something very similar to what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. And he kept talking about how in, in the sort of search for and the connection with and the union with the other – um, and your partner is like the small O other, you're really desiring, you know, this, this connection and union with God, who's the big O other. He said the big O so many times in that class. And we all just had to kind of like, keep it cool, play it cool. Because and in case our listeners are like, what's the matter with that? The big O is another way of saying orgasm, which I find so hilarious. And I don't think he ever knew. He just kept saying the big O in reference to God. And what he was saying was actually spot on and and really helpful, but maybe just a little distracting. Kind of funny and kind of meta, you know, like you're saying orgasm when we're talking about sex. Anyway. okay, so moving us on. This is uh, the third question of four that we're tackling today is, and this one came in from one of our audience members at Theology on Tap. I don't know who, they were anonymous, but does the Bible really say women should not adorn themselves? And I have to tell you listeners that both Beth and I are wearing jewelry (laughs) and looking beautiful, hair done, (laughs) lipstick. Um, We're just total Jezebels over here. So what they're referring to, I'm going to read the two verses, and then I want you guys to weigh in on what you think it meant then and now. And I don't know, are we going to hell for wearing earrings? We'll discuss. The first one is in 1 Peter 3. I'm going to read the, the larger section Wives, it's it's talking about submission. We're not going to get into that because oh, that's a whole other question. And you just skip that part. <laughs> yeah. but, but but it's talking about wives in the same way. Submit yourselves to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words. That part mm-hmm. factors in by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Here comes the, the kicker. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. So that's the first Peter reference. It goes into a whole thing about Old Testament women, which is kind of fun and has a million rabbit trails that we could take. But the other passages in 1 Timothy 2, which Beth talks about in another podcast that we recorded. We're not getting into the men and women business, but it says this. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So what are your thoughts? Are like pearls okay, but gold (laughs) is not? Can we not braid our hair? Like what's, and is this just for then, but now it's fine. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. I mean, I think the first question is, what does it mean to adorn yourself? I think is really yeah. where you should start is kind of, does that mean, like, especially in the Peter passage, there seems to be a like dichotomy that's made of like, you either adorn yourself with jewelry and clothes and the hair, external. or you adorn yourself with your character. Yeah. Um, and yeah, depending on how we interpret what that word adorn actually means, 
there's a world where I can see, meaning, yeah, you can put on earrings, you can do your hair, but what are you <laughs> proud of? What are you presenting as the mm -hmm. thing that makes you you? What are you wanting to communicate to people? Is that is it that? Is it your beauty or your riches or whatever? Riches, I think, is a and big one. I think that's, yeah, that's a big point that I definitely think we should talk about. Or is it your character? Is it your purity, your heart, your devotion to the Lord? Like these things, mm -hmm. is that what you are flaunting? And I think if you live in such a way where your character is the central focus, people aren't going to even really notice what you do <laughs> as far as if you're putting on earrings or you're doing these things. Yeah. That becomes – as long as that is not the center of – how you're presenting yourself. At least yeah. that's how I would interpret the word adorn. But I think that that is definitely the central question. Is it, does it mean that you shouldn't put these things on yourself at all? Or does it mean that you shouldn't proudly present yourself with these things being the core of who you are? It's funny that both passages use the word elaborate. Mm -hmm. So they don't say don't do it at all. They say, yeah, don't go over the top. One of them says something about, Oh, oh no, this is something I, I stole from got questions, mm -hmm. which is a site I love. <laughs> And talks about not being ostentatious. Mm -hmm. I remember one time being in an argument with somebody about something in this realm. And the person I was arguing with is more conservative than I am. And so we actually went and listened to a John MacArthur sermon. <laughs> now, John MacArthur is the height of conservatism on many things, especially having to do with women. Yeah. Even he said... <laughs> This was for a sort of a certain time, not to say that now we can just whore it up and show all the cleavage and all the mm -hmm. leg and whatever, but that when it comes to things like jewelry and like, you know, makeup and all these kinds of things, that it was often about showing off how much money you had mm -hmm. um, or presenting yourself as almost being single when you weren't single, mm -hmm. um, that you were sending a message like, I'm available when you were not available, <laughs> you know, for anyone but your husband. Yeah. So... I feel like if John MacArthur says it's okay to wear makeup and jewelry, yeah. we're probably pretty good. There's That's not all I'm going to say. But. <laughs> but but I would say there definitely are limits, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there was something someone said the other day about um, like handbags. Okay, like two, three, five thousand dollar handbags. Why do people wear these handbags? Yeah. Uh, obviously, it performs the same function as a you know twenty dollar Target or Walmart right. handbag, right? It might last a little bit longer or whatever, but. Um, but it's to tell people. It's it's yeah. to show. It's to show. Yeah. I can. I can That's buy. A great. I, I can buy the Lamborghini shoes. What are they called? The Lamborghini. Yeah, Louboutin. You know, I can buy the. You know, and and other women see them, and it's like yeah, yeah. and men. You know, it's a power play. You know, yeah. right? I mean, it's so it's a way of saying, um, you know, it, it's a status symbol. So mm -hmm. I, I would, I would, I think in, in an age of affluence, that's something that Christians should really consider. Mm -hmm. Like, do we possess things that become status symbols that let the world know, you know, I can't, I mean, our cars, mm -hmm. do cars function in that way? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I do wonder if it's appropriate for a woman to have, you know, a thousand dollar shoes mm -hmm. or for a right. man to have I, I, an example. I went to a wedding. Watches not, for men. I was, I, was say, I went to a wedding not long ago and I kind of, I didn't, I was there by myself. I didn't really know anybody. So I just sat down at a table and before I knew it, I was in a conversation with three people about watches <laughs> and they, rec they recognized, Sorry. you know, and I'm over here, no, I mean, with my, right you know, my, my field Timex here, you know, uh, which I love, I wear it every day and it keeps excellent time, 50 <laughs> bucks, right? 40 bucks maybe. Um, and and they're talking about, you know, $5,000 watches and like, you know, uh, like it's they nothing. They give that money to Theology on Tap. <laughs> like, like it's nothing. Well, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, or, or I don't know, build, I don't know, 10 water wells or something with that. So, I mean, I do think that's a legitimate question. Yeah. Like, like uh, can we have a watch? I think we can have a watch. How much is too expensive of a watch? And is then a, we get into a dangerous territory of putting a line somewhere because if someone right. is a multi-billionaire, mm -hmm. then maybe a $5,000 watch is, is nothing compared them. to the fact that they just gave a million dollars to maybe, make wealth. Maybe yeah. they're $50,000 and I'm probably – my wife jokes that I'm always lowballing what rich people really spend on things. But <laughs> I mean, maybe a $50,000 membership at a country club, you know, enables the, the, the making of money that enables the, you know, the – The networking the, to yeah, get the money yeah, yeah. to give to the poor yeah. people. So, right. I, I, yeah, I, don't, I think we have to be careful. Like I think of Michael Kors as a luxury brand. Because he was on Project Runway, um, but I you know I, so much. Yeah, I, I know, say. but I but I don't but I don't think he act. I think he's like a mid tier luxury yeah. brand, right? Yes. you know, like like there it's are accessible. ways accessible. Yeah, you can so. find it at Macy's. 
Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Exactly. So, yeah. so, you know, it's like, is Michael Kors okay, but Louis oh Vuitton is not? Well, you I know. think even just like the branding in general is something to be careful with. Because yeah. I think that a lot of it, if you're talking about status symbols, some of it has to do with money, but some of it has to do with brands. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I can, this is maybe not entirely relevant, but when I was in middle school, I went to a private school, but we didn't have uniforms. It was just go buy a polo in this color. And I had Hollister polos, which were I don't know if y'all know, but like the lower tier, like oh. cheap, not Hollister. Sorry. I had uh, Aeropostale polos okay. and all of my friends in school had the Hollister and Abercrombie Those ones. are different stories in the mall. And d- yeah. And actual polos in- with the little horse guy on Yes. Well, yeah. <coughs> yeah, She's young. You're old. Yeah. So that's a yeah. whole different. But yeah. the brand, like whether you had the butterfly, which is what I had on mine for the Aeropostale or the like, I think the Hollister. No, American Eagle is. I don't know. But the brand, like it, it said something in it created mm-hmm. just like these different schisms yeah, yeah issues and so i think that that's something to keep in mind too which may not have anything to do with adorning yourself but when you're thinking about what it is that you're putting on and like i think y'all know about preachers and sneakers right yes the instagram account like it's the same thing with just are you well, flaunting your wealth or are you trying to be cool by associating yourself with a brand and i'm i'm a hypocrite when talking about this because i do these things like i i think that that's something that in our culture is pretty easy to fall into and not see a problem with it because everybody is doing it. But what what you're both getting at has to do with like messaging. Yeah. I'm going to use my body and the things I put on my body to send messages. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's about brand recognition. Maybe it's to try to be Mm -hmm. cool and relevant or young or whatever. And I think these verses are saying, let the first thing you're worrying about is that the message be about what's inside, what you believe, how you show compassion, empathy, Mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of, what were you going to say, Evan? I, Talk about preachers and sneakers. What is that? It's just an Instagram account where people have taken pictures of different celebrity pastors wearing very expensive shoes. Okay. Like the Hillsong guys. Yeah. And their, okay. Yeah. And I think it's the Houstonian Yeezys. that started it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to note as well that in Timothy, there's a good argument to be made that the like specific things that are listed there, and I talked about this in the other podcast, but the specific things that are listed there are things that it was known that uh, the leaders of the uh, Artemis Temple yeah. that is in the I in the my same next place. section to say that yeah, yeah like that they that they were wearing they had braided hair that they had this specific kind of jewelry that the list that Tim, that Paul was giving Timothy was specific to do not align yourself with this mm-hmm. other god mm-hmm. and I think that that if that's like the heart of the passage that we want to take that do not align yourself with this other god. Then we say, okay, do not align yourself with whatever other idol mm-hmm. um, it is. So whether that's your wealth or um, brands or recognition or status or whatever it may be, the message is don't align yourself with this other thing, but your goal needs to be to represent Christ and represent mm-hmm. God and everything that you do. And so your clothes shouldn't be a distraction from that. Yeah. I mean, in that time, there was a lot of syncretism going on mm-hmm. and Gnosticism, mm-hmm. especially with almost the worship of Eve. And yeah. women mm-hmm. um, and fertility and all the femininity, yeah. all the things that go with women yeah. where they were almost putting themselves on a pedestal above men. Mm. Not that that would ever happen in modern day <laughs> um, America or Western civilization. But um, and that's there's a problem with that, too. Right. Yeah. Like putting such an emphasis on that to al- like you said, align yourself with something that's mm-hmm. not godly. Yeah. Um that that's another piece of this. Yeah. I think that's important. I might put in a plug for yeah. um, traditional vestments in worship for this very reason. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah. the, the pastor adorns himself, if you will, in, um, in modest clothing, right? The, nondescript clothing, you know, a black shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, and with every layer of, of, a, of a vestment, uh, what it is supposed to represent is one more sort of yoke of service to the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the alb, which is available. You're going to have to find all these terms. Vestment <laughs> so, is like the garments, that the fancy yes, garments. Yes, vestments is what church, you know, church. Uh, yeah, yeah. you know, wear, right? Um, I mean, no one's ever going to put me on pastor sneakers, whatever, because, you know, my <laughs> my two-year-old shoes that desperately need to be shined, uh, you know, they look I terrible. Know a guy. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, so the alb is just the white robe. Then the stole is what goes around, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you know, like a scarf. Out. Yeah, and then the I'm gonna cha- just modernize this. Yeah, or- then the chasuble is what Whoa. is w- worn. You know, usually at um, it's like the it's like a poncho you put on before communion. It's a it's Eucharistic vest. Is that the so- thing that they caught um 
a picture of the Pope's flying up and made all the memes about him looking like a venomous snake. <laughs> well, <laughs> he, I mean, he has his own special vestments that are, you know, papal and only papal, but okay. uh, it, it would be colorful. And they're, and they're usually quite beautiful and ornate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it looks like, oh, that person is fancier. But what, yeah. the, what is really going on is that that person is, is now more and more a servant of the church mm-hmm. and they have less and less freedom in what they're doing now. They're, you know, when they preach, you know, they are now, they have, they have to be totally a servant of the word. And when they're at the table, they're a totally a servant of the mm-hmm. Lord's Supper and all of that. Yeah. And so it almost like identifies them as being for the Lord as opposed to yeah. like identifies them yeah. as. Yeah. And their, their, their personality yeah. and their personage disappears more and more with each you know investment hmm. added yeah. and so I, less I, of me more of you i mean i would hate to have to stand in front of people and look in my closet every week and be like what am i going to wear i literally wear the same thing every single yeah. week like, this is actually the same argument that uh, a lot of private school people uh-huh. make for school uniforms yeah. as well as the like similar to, yeah to distinguish or separate so there's not or to remove the separation yeah. of status and wealth so as you're kids talking aren't mean to each other it also makes me think of all the verses in the bible so my maiden name i say maiden like i'm married but the name i grew up with i am not married so if you're single and you're listening you like what i'm saying you know <laughs> give me a holler but um is garment and so anything in the bible that had to do with garments or clothing <laughs> i always thought was cool like palm sunday was a dream because people would always talk about laying the garments down mm-hmm. for jesus mm-hmm. anyway <laughs> But there are a lot of passages about being robed with righteousness, um, you know, filthy rags and new cl- clothes or new garments or clothe yourself with righteousness. Yeah. Um, I think it is an interesting illustration that's used in the Bible. And it's and here it's just saying it a little bit more literally. Mm-hmm. Those are saying, like, put these things on, impute them or, you know, like, take them on yourselves um, because you want to be a person that extends this kind of character. Mm-hmm. But this is saying, hey, if you're going to do that, don't send another message to the world. Let them see that character. So, yeah. all right. So we all kind of agree that they're not saying not to adorn yourself necessarily, but they're saying to concentrate on your inner character over. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing we didn't talk about, and maybe we don't want to, but is this idea of um, like decency and modesty. I was going to say that's like a whole nother. That is a whole other. And episode. I will say <laughs> as a mom, my views on that have changed a little bit because mm-hmm. I remember getting in arguments with really conservative guys in college and graduate mm-hmm. school yeah. be like women shouldn't show it practically we should wear a burqa you know like mm-hmm. just don't show any skin and i mean i live in houston and i'm a i'm a florida girl like i like letting all my skin like be <laughs> soak up the sun you know wearing tank tops and shorts and things like that but um seeing girls dresses getting shorter and shorter and evan i know your wife just posted something on facebook and she is absolutely correct it's very hard to find lovely dresses for tween and teen girls mm-hmm. that aren't slutty. I mean, truly, like they are so short yeah. or they come down so low. Um, so I, I do think that's an important conversation mm-hmm. to have that while women may not be wholly responsible for men's lust, because there are brothers in Christ, we do carry <laughs> some responsibility for, um, you know, keeping some of that kind of covered yeah. up. Yeah. I think that goes back to church community. I talk about this a lot with my husband too. If just like, there is an element where if you are in a community and you are actually listening to and communicating with like the men are listening to and communicating with the women in their community and the men, the women are listening and communicating with the men, then there's no way to walk away from the conversation about modesty without both sides realizing there are things they need to sacrifice and they need to Mm. do for the sake of the other. Um, And I think that as Christians, our job should be not to fight for and to look for our own personal rights in a situation, but hmm. instead to look for ways where we can lay down our life for our brothers. Yeah. Um, and I think that – so as a woman, I see my job in the conversation about modesty to think of how is it that I can still practically and functionally exist in this culture while still like not – because I don't want to draw attention to myself by looking completely like homely all the time either. So yeah. it's a matter of like we're not suggesting everyone dress yeah, like a nun or something. But how can I how can I sacrifice maybe my desire to wear something that may not be considered modest or would be a prob- problematic for my brothers in Christ? And then I think that the men on the other side of the spectrum should also be looking for okay, how can I better train myself to not. Uh, be a doll. To not, yeah, to not <laughs> fall into lust or whatever it may be that their problem is. Like I think there's, it is. It's a give and take from both from both sides. And if you don't look at it that way, you've 
run the risk of falling into such like what's happened in the past with purity culture and then what's happening right. now with women, there's room the, on both women, pendulum swings yeah liberation to... movement is like no i don't think it's liberating for you to be able to walk around naked like that's not <laughs> so that's true and then none of us would would um espouse like a, a legalistic kind of thing yeah. where you just sort of hate the shape of a woman and you're yeah, covering everything yeah, yeah. these are all heart issues mm-hmm. i mean everything that we're talking about today comes back to like you know, between you and the Lord, yeah. what will glorify him and, and I, help your brothers and sisters. The last thing, because I know I've been talking a lot, but the last thing I would say about this too is always think about it in terms of distraction. Like what mm-hmm. is, where are eyes going to be drawn? Are you distracting people from what actually matters? And I used to work for a summer camp and I was in charge of all of the women at the camp, like all the female students. So my job was to create the boundaries for what they could and couldn't wear at camp, Mm. which is really challenging whenever, yeah, you have to do this and you know that you're going to cause, there's going to be conflict, but you're going to be hated by some (laughs) people. Yeah, exactly. But like, rather than even giving, like there were specific guidelines, obviously, and it was always like dress for the job that you have. And right now your job is to be a student at camp. So, but the, the more specific thing is that I always framed it in terms of distraction. You don't want to wear something that's distracting to others or something that's distracting to you. And that always helped me communicate it to these kids of like, if there's, if you're going to be constantly having to pull your shorts down, constantly pulling your shirt up to like hide your bra or whatever, like you probably shouldn't wear it. Not even just because it's immodest, but because you're not able to focus on what you're here to do. It's annoying. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, Okay. Well, maybe when Theology on Tap becomes, you know, a wealthy entity, we can start our own brand like of merch and oh, it's modest, go. but says things like ask me about my inner character. I don't uh. know. something. Okay. Um, last question. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask the question, but then I want to color it a little bit. The question is, does the Bible really say people will go to hell? <laughs> and so I guess there's kind of a couple questions in there. One is hell real. Is it a real quote mm-hmm. place? I mean, I don't think we have like GPS coordinates, but like, does it exist? You know? And are people going to go there? Um, but I think the underlying question here is, and I hear this all the time. I must be a unicorn because I grew up not hearing this, but so many people have told me, countless people have told me when I was growing up in the church, I was told if I fill in the blank, have sex, do drugs, drink, dance, whatever, that I'm going to hell. Oh, if I'm gay, but any of those things, if I'm, if I blah, 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 I'm going to hell. So let's just start this by saying we're going to be answering the question, does hell exist and are people going there? But, but we are not, I don't think anybody on our leadership team is going to phrase something. If you do da da da, you're going to go to hell unless the da 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 is, you know, deny Christ. Right. (laughs) Um, so I don't want to, cause I, I think that's a thing that the church, it's a, maybe it's a trope, but I think some churches have actually sent that messaging out, whether they meant to or not. So we're not doing that. We're just discussing the actual, is hell real? Are people going there? Yeah. Does the Bible say that? Evan, do you have any thoughts on this? Yes. <laughs> and that's all he's going to say. It, yeah. it is. It is real. People are going there. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I think. Welcome. I, thank you for coming. Bye. No. Well, oh boy. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, we like we did the we did the event with uh, Chris Day a while back on mm-hmm. annihilationism. Um, so, and that's one of his big things. Does hell exist? I think is his website. So if people really want to do a deep dive. I mean, those are the articles. I'm, I'm basically convinced that, you know, uh, texts about eternality and like a fire and, you know, are, are sufficient. Now, do I think it's always as depicted, you know, by what's his name in <laughs> the middle ages, Dante, you know, no, there's not like eight circles of hell or whatever, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. I sometimes wonder if, um, you know, this might sound really dumb, but like if people, will really mind being in hell, you know, um, like, will they hate it? Will they, will they consciously hate every or moment? Or feel like it? it's at home? Like... Or, or will it just be an emptiness <laughs> that's devoid of, you know, the joy that those who are in Christ and with Christ will experience? Um, like, will it be torturous, you know, like being, you know, stuck with hot, you know, prods or something? Um, mm, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I tend to think that's exaggeration. Yeah. Um, but I, I in, at at the end of the day, uh, you know, God's character is such that, um, you know, if we have if we have a sufficiently high regard for His holiness, then our sin is of such a great offense that, mm-hmm. you know, His justice uh, does require, you know, uh, you know, a, an appropriate punishment. 
and also believe that once created, we are eternal beings. I don't think you can un- unring that bell. So, um, so I, uh, but you know, like if I'm, if I'm wrong, I won't care. You yeah. know, uh, it's not like a, you know, people like just fight so much about these like eternal questions. Yeah. And, and it's, it's not that I don't think they're important. Um, if they are an offense to God's holiness, I, I find them especially, you know, important. And I think this could be that, but you know, for me, it's just not a question I get really hot and bothered about. Ah, hot. Um, but so, uh, you know, I don't think it's like a question of salvation. If you, you know, have a different point of view, um, I'm I'm far more uh, opposed to, you know, universalism, because yeah. uh, I think that it really is an offense to God's holiness at that point and a real cop out, um, <laughs> rather than something like annihilationism. Yeah, yeah, you know. So you're you said something that I think the Bible does not say very much about heaven or hell, mm-hmm. and when I say heaven, I mean the new earth. I mean, we know some things. We know, obviously, there will be one and there'll be no more tears. And and we know some stuff. But we extrapolate a lot. And I extrapolate a lot about heaven. I'm, like, going to be super skinny and teleport to various places that I can't travel to now because I don't have the money to. But same with hell. Like, so I looked it up last night. Hell is mentioned 167 times in the Bible, whether it's called Gehenna, Hades, Outer Darkness, Abyss, Eternal Punishment. I mean, there's a couple others. But... um. So it's, and Jesus talks about it, you know, a fair amount. So we, we can say that it exists without understanding everything about it. Is it going to be torturous and Dante like? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be just a bunch of people that are like, Oh man, I should have said yes to Jesus. I don't know. Um, yeah, but I do think it is. And I'm torn on, um, sort of the traditional view of hell or annihilationism. I, I could see myself going either way, but, but either way, the separation of God. Um, separation from God, rather, for those that have not said yes and surrendered to Christ, I think is real. And yes, I think people will choose that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to note that like the goal, God's ultimate purpose for his creation is that he will unite himself to creation and dwell with humanity for all of eternity. I think that's like really important to start there. And so then the question is, what about the people who... Don't want to be a part of it. Don't want to be a part of it. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Who reject him and um, do not wish to be a part of that new creation that he's going to establish. Um, And yeah, when you're talking about scripture and those passages, though, I think it is important to note that there's – when it is talking about Hades, Mm -hmm. it is more so speaking about the Jewish concept of the afterlife, which is this like waiting place of the dead. And it is not necessarily talking about – our concept of hell that Christians are talking about now, which is the after judgment, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what happens. And there's a really important distinction there to have. There's, there is what happens to people when they die, um, which is called personal eschatology. So the end of your personal life or the human's personal life. And then what happens at the end of time, which is universal eschatology. And so uh, there's so many different views on all of this. And so um, – I think what we're talking about when we're saying do people go to hell is the universal question of what happens at the end of all time with everybody, whether we believe people go straight there after they die or whether we believe there's an intermediate state or whatever. It doesn't matter. Just like what is going to be the end of all things for the non-believer. And so, yeah, there's there's three options, right? There's Mm -hmm. either annihilationism, which is that you do not have – an eternal soul, which I am very much inclined to believe. I think that scripture points us to thinking that, or scripture points us more so to God being the only source of eternal life and your human soul isn't innate with eternality, but is instead granted it by the breath of God and by the tree of life, which is, mm-hmm. I think, metaphor for the spirit of God, which is only going to exist in the new creation. So therefore, your like existence is dependent on God. Um so I am yeah. a huge fan of annihilation. Conditional and yeah, fully, fully on the annihilation <laughs> camp. Um, but I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, but the, um, but the traditionalist view obviously has merit in the fact that it is traditional that it has been talked about that there is a literal place where you go. Um, and I think yeah, 
worth noting that the traditionalist view does not have to entail eternal conscious torment. It can be um, psychological torment. It doesn't have to be physical torment. I think there's kind of like what you were saying, like it doesn't necessarily mean that people are actually burning alive for all of eternity. Sure. Um, it can be something different. And so I think all that nuance, uh, getting to my point, is that all of this nuance and like these different views minus universalism, which is the view that nobody goes to hell, but God eventually restores and brings all people into his um, new creation after judgment um i think that like there is a lot of different ways there's what was I gonna, yeah so there is a lot of nuance in these different views so they're not even all as straightforward as they come across either. sure and then there's christian universalism and yeah. then just regular universalism. yeah exactly but for um, our purposes i think we're probably kind of all saying that let's let's table universalism mm-hmm. any kind of it and say that there really is a distinction to be made between those who put their trust in Christ and those who don't. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, since the name of the series is, does the Bible really say, I thought I would read a couple Bible verses and maybe we can talk about it a little bit, or maybe they say what they need to say and we can call it a wrap. <laughs> um, but probably the most scary one is in second Thessalonians one. Um, I feel like Thessalonians, you only bust out when you need like a proof text <laughs> or something. Maybe that's just me, but um, uh, verses eight and nine say this. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. That seems like an oxymoron. (laughs) And shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Which is um, pretty, I mean, there's a lot there that is not necessarily clear. It could be poetic. I mean, uh, everlasting destruction, right? Like, well, if it's everlasting, how could it be destruction? And um but whether it's poetic or whether it's literal or somewhere in between, the idea is that some will not be in the presence of the Lord mm-hmm. for eternity. I think that seems I'll, I'll read the other ones and then you guys can comment. The other two are from Matthew uh, because people always want to talk about, well, what did Jesus say? Did Jesus <laughs> say? So this is Jesus. This is red letter from the lips of God himself. Um, in Matthew 13, he says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, we don't have to decide if that's, it burns them up and that's done mm-hmm. or if it's ongoing, but either way, it's not a good ending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the, the last one is in math, not the last one, just the last one I chose for today <laughs> is Matthew 25 says, then he will say to those on his left, this is the whole sheep and goats thing. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And again, I don't really want to get into a back and forth about whether the fire is eternal or whether it burns them up right away. Mm -hmm. But I think all three of these verses can at least lead us to see that there are kind of two camps of people. Those that will say yes, those that will say no. And for those that say no, there's not a great ending. Mm -hmm. And, and, and this is not to be like wagging your finger and saying, so don't do all those terrible things. It, there is a sense of urgency though, that we want every one that we love yeah. and more mm-hmm. to live with Jesus yeah. and to be in, in his perfect presence when heaven comes to earth. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of important things. So, so yes. So the, the, the fundamentalist who says, if you do this, you will go to hell. Well, I mean, there, there is, there is some truth to the fact that if we, mm-hmm. you know, if we live, you know, morally dissolute lives, um, it's because we have rejected God's grace and we have rejected, mm-hmm. you know, His law, and we have, we, we are saying to God, I insist on living on my own terms, and there's a consequence for that, yeah. w- whether it's annihilationism or eternal conscious, whatever it is, to, <laughs> you know, torment or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a consequence for that, so I don't think it's wrong to say that. Um, how it's said is probably important. But the other thing, I mean, maybe a question behind the question, I think, is something like, um, yeah, let's just say that hell exists as in the traditional view. Um, does God really have the right to do that? And I, Interesting. I, I think that's really yeah. the, the conflict is like, you Who know, I, I, yeah, I, I won't believe in a God that, that would do that. But really, like whenever Christians talk about grace, what we're actually saying is that all of us deserve <laughs> that thing, that, mm-hmm. uh, that judgment, the annihilation or the mm-hmm. eternal conscious torment. That is what we all should get. Hmm. given God's nature and given our sin. So the fact that none of us, or or, or that not all of us end up in that place is what grace is. So, you know, so um, 
I think maybe sometimes we forget that. But I that that is what I would want to, you know, I mean, I think about someone like Rob Bell, you know, who popularizes universalism and things like that. And, you know, what's important to me is, you know, what is what does he really think about God? You know, do, what, who, who is God to this person? Yeah. Does he think God has revealed himself? Does God have the sovereign right to judge? Is God just, you know, the handy hand, the hander out of lollipops? I mean, what who who is he? <laughs> and normally I find these you know, these guys to present very deficient gods, you know, yeah. they, they strip God of his rights and of his holiness. Uh, and it just is so offensive to me. So now I will say, you know, Chris Date will say, well, actually, annihilationism is worse than eternal yeah. conscious torment, right? <laughs> I don't agree yeah, with that. I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't get that either. You know, I'm like, uh, yeah. I know it, people that do agree with him, though. So I know, for sure, for sure. He makes a compelling yeah. yeah, it's better to basically live a crappy life than to live, you know, yeah. and I'm going, cease oh, to exist. I don't know. Have you seen the rates of, up? like, uh, doctor-assisted suicide lately? They're, they're going up. A lot of people disagree with that. You know, a lot of people would rather. <laughs> On this side, they yeah. haven't. We can't talk to people in like Sheol or yeah, yeah, the yeah. intermediate place. And and to put yeah. a pin in that, mm-hmm. Sheol, the Hebrew is the Hebrew word for uh-huh. that that you know the place yeah. between heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and in Greek, it's it's basically Hades and or paradise. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like right. Jesus says today, yeah, you'll be with me exactly. in paradise. The, so I think that's important to note yeah. that heaven and hell, the gates to those are not open yet. Yeah. That's what I would argue. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. So, agree. so yeah, even even when the pastor said you'll go to hell, ah, well. <laughs> You know, it doesn't go. You'll go to Hades. Doesn't roll off the tongue as much. Yeah, that's so. true. I like how our hot takes on these questions are. Ah, well, <laughs> but no, I hear you, and I think I think all of this is good stuff. Um, but I think you're right that there's subtext behind the question, which is, mm-hmm. does God have the right to, or who is He to yeah. send people there? You know, which I think is important to note that, like, if we're talking about God. Like, what does God, what can can God not do based on his character is to think about the fact that one of the key defining things about God's nature is his justice. And if we mm-hmm. really do want a just God, which I think we do. everybody wants a just God, everybody wants the bad things that happen to them to have some sort of justice. I think mm-hmm. they want redemption um, in a sense, like redemption from the injustices that happen to them. And if God is not a just God, then like... Yeah, then kind of God we're not, yeah, yeah. not going to be able to get him? that. So there has to be some element of justice. Now, to give some credit to the universalists, because I think there are a lot of universalists who are actually faithful Bible-believing Christians, mm-hmm. as difficult as that is. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm always trying to be a little bit more sympathetic to them, even though I disagree with them, because I think they're not saying that God is not going to provide justice. Usually there is an element of purging or something that is going to happen at the judgment, at the throne of God before the new creation. He's not just going to bring a bunch of evildoers into the new creation and be like, you're free, you're completely right. forgiven. Like, they will see the damage of their sins and of the rejection that they had of him. Um, I don't think any true universalist who like is a serious scholar or a serious Christian doesn't have some element of that kind of purging that needs to happen for the person before they can enter into God's presence. Um, So they still kind of do maintain a little bit of God's holiness and that like they're not just letting Mm -hmm. sin in the presence of God. Uh, but yeah, like I always, when teaching this to my students, I always say uh, that I hope universalism is true. I'm pretty logically and biblically convinced that annihilationism is true, and I live my life and evangelize like traditionalism is true in the sense hmm. that the Bible is not clear enough on any of the three that I could see that I know for sure what's going to happen to the non-believers yeah. after the judgment. Um, but I can understand the different arguments and entertain them because they're fun and interesting but in the end just hope and pray that everyone that i know and love will come to know christ yeah because of what what could possibly happen so what you said about justice is a perfect sort of closing to this because the the question is is god just Mm -hmm. and we want him to be just when it comes to other people i think that's a pretty universal quality Mm -hmm. you want some something out there, the universe, mm-hmm. energy, whatever there is, if yeah. it's not God, right, to um, to exact justice to the bad people, to the sex traffickers and the mm-hmm. Hitlers of the world yep. and all your exes. 
Yeah. But not you. <laughs> Nikki Gumbel in the alpha videos does a whole thing where he's like on a bike and he wants all of the, you know, he's biking, but he wants all of the other people in traffic that are driving cars to be smitten, smit, not smit, smote. <laughs> Smited? Smited. <laughs> he wants God to smite them because of their breaking rules, or whatever. But then when he has the opportunity to break a rule, you know, mm-hmm. he wants to. And it's a yeah. silly example, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And you take that on a much bigger scale. Um, that's what we really want. But if we want justice for others, it also has to come for us. Otherwise, yeah. it's not justice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Well, guys, I think this was really good. I appreciate your, uh, your thoughts and, um, uh, thank you for joining us, Beth. Yeah, that was a course. treat to have you. It was fun to be um, here. we're going to be having a guest, I think for each of these. So stay tuned for more about does the Bible really say, and, um, check out our live events and everything you need to know about theology on tap. By the time this airs, we may be actually starting to, um, you know, collect donations for our nonprofit. So if you're listening to this and you happen to have fancy shoes, <laughs> Maybe consider before buying your next pair, giving that money to Theology on Tap. Everything you need to know about us, you can find at HoustonTOT.com. And so, of course, until we see or hear from you next, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.